Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbond80z.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where T is for Tomorrow Never Dies, the 1997 Bond film starring Piers Brosnan as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the story behind the 18th James Bond movie, he looks in the papers every day from my obituary, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. (laughs) Wow. Hello. (laughs) And making his James Bond A to Z debut, he could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. It's friend of the show, Mr. Jack Cross. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Oh, our pleasure, Jack. Our pleasure. Um, let's kick things off, uh, first of all, by talking about um, our first experiences. Jack, uh, you were keen to come on for this episode. Why Why is it so special to you, this movie? I mean, like many of the guests that you've had on, really, Tomorrow Never Dies is that nostalgia for me. It's that sort of first film that is mine, if you like, within the James Bond canon, sort of grow up on watching them on ITV, as loads of people who've come on have, have said, but Tomorrow Never Dies felt like it was the first Bond that was my Bond. And um, it's sort of at the time where, as well, if, if to use another phrase, becoming a man, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you can see the possibilities and the excitement of going to beautiful places and beautiful women and being effortlessly cool, none of which I've achieved in later life. <laughs> <laughs> And Brendan, do you remember seeing it for the first time? This was the first cinema one. Ah. So this was, we've got there finally. Uh, this was kind of a big deal. I remember being a very uh, easy to impress 11 year old, would have been, and the pre title sequence. I remember it blowing me away, to be honest. I fell for the old Bond's dead. <laughs> and then bang, out he comes, and the credits, pre title credits come on. Fantastic. At the time. Yeah, I mean this at the time. This film for me uh, came as I was a teenager as well, and um, it came out as a time when I was going to the cinema a lot, a lot. Like it was really sort of a formative film. I think uh, Goldeneye had been a big hit for me, but this was um, this is one of those that came out when I was going to the cinema all the time, and so it um, yeah, it holds a special place in my heart for for that reason, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to, to talk about it. I've found, I don't know how you two have found it, but I found this is probably one of the most well-reported Bond movie stories behind the scenes um, anyway. I uh, don't know how you found the research. Yeah, there's a, a wealth of material and most of it is because of the, the problems and difficulties that they've had in getting it all together and the amount of changes and the amount of frustrations that people have had. And and I think it's even more amazing, having done the research, that they managed to get it out at all. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, one hundred percent. Right. So, synopsis for the film, uh, courtesy of MGM: uh, A deranged media tycoon tries to destabilize the world economy by orchestrating a deadly standoff between world superpowers in an attempt to achieve high ratings for his media conglomerate. Now, Bond 
must take on this evil mastermind in an adrenaline-charged battle to end his reign of terror and prevent World War Three. So quite a lot at stake in this one. Um, <laughs> but as we've mentioned, I think of all the Bond films we've covered so far, which is nearly all of them, they've all faced their, their sort of production issues. But reading about this one, I think it, it really is one of the most challenging shoots they ever faced, to be honest. Um, and thanks to the, the, the making of book by Garth Pierce on this one, a lot of the backstage drama is well documented. I don't know if either of you read this uh, behind the scenes book by Garth Pierce. Yeah, I've got but it with one me, of the it's and it's you have yeah it's a it's a really really interesting read because I, I, one of the things i found about it is that clearly obviously it's a it's a behind the scenes making of and garth pierce tries as hard as he can i think to to sugarcoat and make it a really positive experience and sees the challenges of, as opportunities but lots of the interviews with the crew certainly don't feel that way no, actually, I think it's a brutally honest um, uh, making of book. And actually, quite interestingly, the one that followed it, the one for The World Is Not Enough, is nowhere near as, as detailed or as um, um, as as honest as this one. I think the one the, the one that followed it, the, the World Is Not Enough one, didn't have anywhere near the amount of detail um, and behind-the-scenes drama as this one did. So I think Eon probably got wise to the idea and sort of backpedalled a little bit after that book came out. Is that why the Dying of the Day one is just... Pictures. It's just pictures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, went, they went from the book for Goldeneye, which is pretty good, to this one, to The World Is Not Enough, to, yeah, just pictures in, in Dying of the Day. And they've only really gone back to making them for, for No Time To Die, didn't they? Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, talking about the, the challenges that this film faced, uh, it was a production that stretched from England to France, Germany, Thailand, USA, Mexico. At one point, it employed 720 people. They started filming in January 1997, ended in September 1997 and released it in December 1997. Um, and we'll explore the reasons for that, I suppose, in a minute. Um, but yeah, they, they basically they, they had to uh, start later than they wanted and finish quicker than they thought was even possible. And in, in the Garth Pierce book, there's this quote from Michael G. Wilson, which I find amazingly honest. He said, I feel trepidation. Getting it all planned out and the script right has been a major problem. Usually, if the script is not right, you just postpone the picture. But we can't do that. There is a release date and everyone has agreed to it. MGM says, it's very important to us. Please do it. So we have a deadline, which is the tightest ever. To be on screen in December, to be frank, we've never been under so much pressure. I mean, for Mark, Michael and Barbara, this is their second one on their own. I mean, <laughs> it really is a miracle this movie got made. Yeah. And just to sort of list some of the issues they face, I mean, we'll cover all this in detail. They've got the, the tight schedule, the script. They also had problems with the studio space, the locations, the actors, and, and more uh, on, on top of that. It is really is a miraculous movie, really. So should we look at 1997, Brendan? Oh, what a year. The highlight being, it was the last time the UK won the Eurovision Song Contest. Is that right? <laughs> we are with Love Shine a Light by Katrina and the Waves. But also a huge year in terms of there was a general election and there was a massive landslide win for Tony Blair and the Labour Party. The transfer of Hong Kong, which was the largest remaining British colony at the time, and that went to China. Um, and of course, the death of Princess Diana. And that has connections to this film. So as production was nearing its end in August 97, Barbara Broccoli had found out that Dodie Fired had been killed alongside Princess Diana in a car crash in Paris. 
And um, she said, I met him through friends at an American school in London. Dodie, who loved the cinema, used to visit my father's film sets. We became part of his family and he became part of ours. Um, And they were due to visit the set at Pinewood in early September. So, yeah, um, I think we've talked about Dodie Fired before and his forays into film producing. Have we? I I I recall it, but Chariots of Fire is the big success. Ah, Um, okay. I think maybe when we did the Barbara Barbara Broccoli episode, maybe. It might be that, yeah. 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 So in terms of uh, film, brace yourself. There's some good ones in here. Full Monty, Gattaca, Face Off, Donnie Brasco, Goodwill Hunting, As Good As It Gets, LA Confidential, The Fifth Element, Liar Liar, Austin Powers, which is, of course, his spoofing Bond, Batman and Robin, and Flubber. Yeah, those last two. uh... (laughs) They're still iconic films, but they're not great. Um, in terms of the box office, oof, well, I mean, the top three, any guesses? Titanic. Yeah, it's got to be Titanic. Of course, Titanic is number one, $1.8 billion. I feel like Air Force One. No. <laughs> Flubber. <laughs> the Lost World. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Is second with, with only 618 million, though. That's so mm. far off Titanic. And then Men in Black with $589 million. And in at number four is Tomorrow Never Dies. So you can see the challenge Tomorrow Never Dies has. I mean, it was also released within a few weeks of Titanic. So that's going to be difficult, isn't it? You know, two two films about a sunken ship. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's only one that's going to make it, really. Um, but also in between Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies we'd lost Cubby Broccoli he passed away in June 1996 and um, he'd obviously passed the reins on to Barbara and Michael at this point but uh, his health had deteriorated and Roger Moore said the last few years of Cubby's life were not easy for him he underwent a great deal of fairly drastic surgery for me it was terrible to see a man who was so vital in every aspect suffering but his family were always there particularly Dana. He adored her and she him. And Sean Connery also said, my previous differences with Cubby were well known, but I recently took the opportunity to make peace with him. So I think we've spoken about that. They had a phone call shortly before he passed away. Um, So yeah, July 96, Cubby's funeral was held um, in Beverly Hills. Timothy Dalton was a pallbearer and John Barry selected the music. I mean, he's had a full full Bond experience, a great send-off. Um, many other people from the world of Bond attended Jill St. John, Marianne Darbo, Desmond Llewellyn and also Gregory Peck was there Um, and then they held a memorial service in November 96 at Odeon Leicester Square quite fitting Um, but Michael Michael G. Wilson who obviously had been part of the the whole Bond franchise he he said he would miss his presence as they sat opposite, opposite each other in the office um, he said he was my mentor and my dearest friend. And it was at this point where Michael G. Wilson vowed that James Wan would return and they would continue in the same vein. He said um, that himself and Barbara, they wanted to continue as the legacy had begun. Uh, he said, we have inherited what legions of fans around the world would world think as something of a holy grail. We also have the pressure that goes with it. Cubby never cut back on budgets, skimped on the set, or first-class action sequences. He always had high production values, 
Barbara and I have pledged to produce the films in the same way. So what a task to have for this film. Absolutely, yeah. And the pressure's on because of the problems that they have at, um, at MGM United Artists as well, isn't it? Yeah, so John Kelly leaves United Artists to join Sony as well. So it's that, And that will have repercussions later on as we will cover. But yeah, they'd greenlit, greenlit this pretty quickly. Yeah, so um, 10 days actually before filming Raps on GoldenEye, um, Tomorrow Never Dies gets the green light to go ahead. Um, initially, before GoldenEye had been released, there'd been some market research that had been put out by United Artists and the return of Bond was sort of up in the air. There was this the gap between Dalton leaving and then GoldenEye being being made and released. And the market research initially suggested that maybe Bond is, Bond's time was over, particularly in the States. And that was one of the markets they were particularly worried about. But after you know the filming had begun on GoldenEye, um, Barbara and Michael fly out to LA to meet with Jeff, Cle- uh, Jeff Kleeman, who's the senior vice uh, president of production for UA. And they have the opportunity to see some of the footage uh, from GoldenEye. They get to see a bit of a run of that. And they also get to see the trailer that's uh, the success of the trailer that's starting to play in cinemas and the buzz for GoldenEye is 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 palpable and they can see that there's going to be a real market here so 10 days before GoldenEye is released they get the green light to go ahead and um and Jeff Kleeman says you know our feeling was that although GoldenEye was not released across the world until late 1995 it'd be too late to make a decision for after it after it had been released and it was worth spending two hundred thousand dollars to get the script moving and this also coincided for MGM because they were also going to go with uh, live with their public stock offering. And they also realised what a big potential the Bond franchise was in terms of attracting that investment. And Michael, so Michael says, you realise there's a huge audience and I guess you don't want to come out with a film that's going to somehow disappoint them. And so they were really keen to get moving with Tomorrow Never Dies and really keen to make sure that it was even bigger and better before. And that's one of the things that in the Garth Pierce book that Michael Wilson talks about often in terms of, you know, GoldenEye was, GoldenEye's a great hit. We need to make sure that it's bigger, it's better, it's braver and it's bolder. So they were really, really keen to get to get that moving. And uh, the first, you know, the first port of call is really to get the script up and running and they were prepared to spend 200 grand to get to get it off the book you know off the drawing board yeah so that 200 grand is uh is the figure quoted and that the, the original idea or the initial plan um was to center the story around hong kong the, hang, the transfer of hong kong and and two treatments were delivered by the novelist donald westlake um and this was even like you say before golden idea opened in cinemas uh, and it was about a British businessman seeking to, to destroy Hong Kong after being kicked out when the island was returned to Chinese sovereignty. Um, but this treatment by Donald Westlake was unused. Westlake did later turn it into a novel, which was published in 2017 uh, after the author died. And it, you can buy it still. It's called Forever and a Death. And according to the book, uh, the businessman's plan involved digging tunnels under Hong Kong banks to steal the gold. Then they would use a device to trigger what they call a soliton wave, which turned the ground to basically liquid and caused the whole city of Hong Kong to sink into the water. And and Donald Westlake's uh, t- treatment also had a pre-title sequence in Transylvania. It's not entirely clear why his treatment was dismissed, but they didn't like it. 
Um, but the idea of shooting around in Asia was something that stuck from that treatment. Uh, they haven't actually shot in Asia since Man with a Golden Gun in 74. So Bruce Fierstein, who had been one of the writers on GoldenEye, he was hired to write a first draft. And it was him who came up with the idea of the media mogul villain. And we've discussed this previously on the um, uh, Elliot Carver episode, which way back when. Um, but yeah, he basically came up with the idea while watching a story about the Middle East. And he was watching it on Sky News. But then he flipped over the channel, saw it on CNN, noticed that the two stories were about the same thing, but vastly different. And he that sort of planted the seed of uh, an idea in his mind. He also wanted to set part of his story in Hong Kong. But he insists it wasn't because he'd read the Donald Westlake treatment. It was just Hong Kong was in the ether at the time. Everyone was talking about it because of the transfer of power. So his first draft, which was titled Tomorrow Never Lies, inspired by the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows, had some of the interesting thing to note about it. It had a gun barrel after the pre-title sequence before the title. So they were playing around with the idea of putting the gun barrel in different places before the Daniel Craig era. Um, but it started off with an action sequence in the Kyber Pass with an arms bazaar like we see in the final movie. Um, and there was a villain in it. His name was Harm's Way rather than Carver. And there was a henchman called Stamper as well. So that's all from Bruce Fierstein's first draft. Q wasn't in this first draft. He was being written out. But Desmond Llewellyn's character was being written out um, because they knew he was sort of wanted to retire from the role. And so at the start of the movie... You find out that Q's retired. He's retired to go on a fishing trip. And you meet his deputy, who does the Q part, a guy called Saunders. But then Q does pop up later in this first, uh, in this initial draft. And Bond meets him uh, on his retirement fishing trip uh, on, on a posh yacht somewhere. So um, that's quite a nice idea, I think. Um, in, in this early version, there's a sequence in Venice. And Zukovsky returns in this first draft. Um, but similarities are that Harmsway's wife, who has history with 007, does, she dies and, and Blonde ha uh, Bond takes the blame for it. So there are bits and bobs that sort of survive into the final script. And the legend has it that the, this was the script that was greenlit. And when they sent it to the uh, publicist, the publicist misspelled the title, possibly from a dodgy fax. So it became Tomorrow Never Dies. I don't know how true that is. But from the making of book, the Garth Pierce book, we know that the location manager, Richard Sharkey, had spent eight weeks working from this original script and had looked at locations. He was looking at the Bank of England vaults, Venice, Madrid, and he'd found 90% of the locations. But when Roger Spottiswood came in, more on him in a minute, there was a major, major overhaul of the script. There was a consulting agency brought in, who, uh, a company called Kissinger Associates, who looked at the script to help them avoid any political issues they might find in it. They advised that the Hong Kong handover plot wasn't a good idea because it, anything could happen between the making the movie and the Hong Kong handover happening. It would be out of date instantly. So that was they said, let's not do that. So what they did, what Eon did is they assembled a think tank of writers at the behest of uh, Spottiswood. And this think tank included Robert Collector, David Campbell Wilson, Tom Ropolewski, Kurt Wimmer, Leslie Dixon, and the probably the most famous name, Nicholas Meyer, the director of Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. They worked with the Bond Bible that had been written by John Cork, see previous episodes, but they were overseen by Michael G. Wilson. And while they didn't actually come up with a new movie while they were doing this th think tank, 
they did come up with lots of different ideas, scenes and elements that would come and end up being in the movie. And then another guy was brought in. Uh, Bruce Feirstein wrote another draft of the script by using those ideas. And then a guy called Daniel, Daniel Petrie Jr., who had written Beverly Hills Cop, came in to write another draft after that. And it was meant to start shooting in January 1997, but that was pushed back to April 1997 um, because of the changes. It was kind of crazy that uh, the draft that Daniel Petrie Jr. Uh, submitted in March 1997 came with a note attached. It says, please note that this is the final shooting script. That does not mean there will be no further changes. Au contraire, it means that this will be the last complete draft published on white paper. Hereafter, changes will be issued as colour revision pages. And when filming was completed, only three white pages remained of that, <laughs> of that script. And as principal photography began, Bruce Feirstein found himself after being, you know, after having written two scripts and, and then being dismissed, he was rehired to rewrite the script on the fly. And he said, ultimately, this film is my baby, no matter what. I know that having started this journey, I want to finish it. I also know that when a studio calls you and says, we would like you to come back, you do it. But I am sitting here now thinking, will I ever catch up? Will I ever be able to fix it? And Brosnan himself, Pierce Brosnan, was not happy at all with the situation. And he made that very clear to Barbara and Michael, calling the script not articulate or cohesive enough. He says, to have so many writers come on to this and then still throw out the stuff is just a joke. But from it all, I think they've got a really fine story. I've been down this avenue before, but not on such a high profile position as this. And when I first read the completed script, I thought, well, is that it? And so the final draft of the film, the final script that uh, was the, 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 the shooting script was dated 18th of August 1997, five months into shooting. And throughout the story of the making of it's basically you, you find Bruce Feirstein is writing just off camera, giving pages to Pierce Brosnan to read. Um, it just sounds absolutely chaotic, the screenwriting on this. Isn't there uh, things like people in the hotel room, like Judy Dench got a script at like 10 o'clock at night, things like that? Yeah, just, Judy Dench famous, like, famously said that in an interview, didn't she, that, it, you know, that she, she called Roger Spottiswood out for it. I think you know that she would be receiving a script by a courier at 10 o'clock at night and expected to have it next day. And it, she was just like, it's just not, it's just not workable. For us to, to work in this way absolutely not it's terrible yeah it's bonkers so finding a new director now ideally the producers wanted martin campbell to come back after he'd done such a great job with goldeneye but he chose to make the mask of zorro instead um and he said i felt i'd done goldeneye maybe mistakenly i didn't want to repeat it Interesting comment, considering he then goes on in 2006 to direct Casino Royale. But maybe he likes fresh starts. Maybe that's his thing. But he was also offered uh, every every Brosnan film. So uh, every turn he gets he gets offered it. And what, what could have been if he'd have done all four, eh? Nicholas Meyer was also mentioned, who you've, who you've uh, spoke about. And yeah, he directed The Wrath of Khan. But uh, September 1996... They sign the director, Roger Spottiswood. Now, he had worked as an editor for Sam Peckinpah and also he had had a, a large action film called Air America. Have either of you seen this? Robert Downey Jr., is it? Yeah, I've not seen it. Yeah, and it's it's mentioned quite a lot, but I've 
Yeah, we'll have to dig that one out, I think. So, but Roger Spottiswood, he had been touted to direct a potential Dalton. But he said that he really didn't know how to do it with Dalton. I like things edgy, not somber. Um, obviously, they, they didn't go ahead anyway. Um, but Spottiswood had been in and around and amongst the Bond franchise and, and the making. You know, he, he knew Peter Hunt and he'd met most of the other directors. He said, I've seen them being made. I worked in Pinewood and you kind of wander onto the set a little bit. Um, and he'd also worked as an assistant editor on Harry Saltzman's Funeral in Berlin. So a lot of connections there. Um, and he'd seen GoldenEye and he said it had a brilliant opening and the tank chase was fantastic. He got the backing of the main man. Pierce Brosnan um, liked the this, his personal style and he said, give the guy a chance. I think you'll be impressed. He has his own way of dealing with things. So yeah, other other projects that he had worked on, uh, Turner and Hooch and Stop or My Mum Will Shoot. Um, they're the yeah. ones that stand out, really. But he he basically, he likes to let his work speak for itself. And that comes across in quite a few interviews that he does. You can see that his his answers aren't that detailed. Um, he, can, he can give just one word answers at times. Um, so he, he does, when he does, you know, I think you've listened to the audio commentary, Tom. Yeah. And you say that he, he does expand a bit more than other interviews. Yeah, he's right? quite eloquent on the, uh, on the audio commentary. Yeah, he gives a good account of himself. But he did, he spoke a bit in uh, the book, The Making Of, and they asked him about his approach. And um, he said, for anyone making a sequel, you have to decide how much to keep and how much to change. Everyone has an opinion, which is a great thing but it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. With Pierce Brosnan, you've got to keep him sexy. You've got to get more Bond babes, faster cars, more gadgets. Everyone has an opinion what they think Bond should be like. You know, and that that's true. We sometimes forget that's a major thing weighing on each director that they pick. You know, that's probably why John Glenn did it for so long, because, you know, at least he can deal with the pressure. I think what's but good as he, well is if it, for this for this film in particular is that that sort of style with which he directs is very functional, you know, very fast paced and given the time constraints, actually he was the perfect man to get this out in many ways because he's, you know, he's very, you know, he's, he makes sure that he focuses on results. That's one of the things, again, that lots of the crew talk about actually he comes across as being acerbic and he comes across as being very short and direct, but actually that's because he wants, he wants to ensure that, you know, the film is delivered on time. And particularly for this film, that was one of the big issues. Yeah, definitely. There's other directors that wouldn't have handled this and we might not have got anything come out at the end of it. But he got on with Pierce Brosnan as well. And I think that, that also helps. Um, he liked him. He said he's a nice man. He said he's the only person who's been able to play Bond since Connery. He said he's not playing it like Connery, but it's his own version of it, which is great. An actor who has such ease and grace as Pierce is a treasure and a pleasure. Hear, hear. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is something uh, that I just found funny when they asked him, "If do you not do you try to not think about the fast release date?" And he just said, "No, I think about it all the time." So it's clearly, you know, it's it is weighing on him, but he's dealing with it very well. I have to say, you know, if if you know, not saying anything and being short is uh, is the way of dealing with it. Then fair enough. 
yeah, again, but that's one of the things that people spoke about him, you know, particularly like Sam, pa- Sam Peckinpah would say, you know, because he was an editor for Sam Peckinpah, you know, and he edits fast. That was like the mm. main the main adjective yeah. they used to describe his style is he does it quickly. Yeah, get to the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so who does he bring with him in the, on the, in the crew? As uh, Tom mentioned earlier, all told, there's 720 crew. Are you going to mention all of them? Yeah, I'm not going to mention them all. No, but, <laughs> but Wilson, but Wilson says that there's that 90% of the crew. He reckons 90% of the crew have worked on Goldeneye or a previous Bond movie, and that's one of the things that comes out from a lot of the episodes is that there's a real family feel, and that actually, if you if you come and work for Bond and you do a good job, then you know then you stay within the fold and you and you work again. So most of the crew are, are returners. Obviously, Michael and Barbara as as producers, and again. You know, I had the same quote for, that you found earlier, Tom. You know, in terms of that that trepidation right at the start, but there's also a real sense of excitement for both of them in the sense of, you know, this is an opportunity for us to to make something that's got more impressive locations, a more dramatic script. It gives us an opportunity to top Goldeneye, and they were the conversations that they had with Roger Spottiswood. Like, I mean, you mentioned the tank chase earlier. Um, from Goldeneye and that was very much something that they wanted to kiss well actually we want to take that formula and make it more you know we want to in that you know so the motorbike uh, the motorbike chase comes comes to fruition there and um, you know one of the things that Barbara said about it is you know to get good results on screen you never get them without a struggle and it's about creating that special atmosphere that's built up over a long period of time. And that's why, you know, they go back to those returning crew as often as they do. So Chris Corbold returning for his eighth Bond film, but second as special effects supervisor. Vic Armstrong as the second unit director. And the same similar stunt team. But the main new new member of the crew is Alan Cameron. And this is his one and only Bond film. And he previously uh, worked with um, with Roger Spottiswood on Air America again. The Air America theme mm. coming up, and he, he was sort of was talking. He talk, likes to talk about being, you know, trying to marry that reality and the fantasy element of um, of the Bond of the Bond world, and to sort of a bit like you were saying, Brendan, giving. The people like Bond. Everyone's got an opinion on what Bond is, and everyone's got an mm. opinion on who Bond should be, and trying to give that grounded reality with, you know, the fantastic reasons that we, you know, that we watch the Bond franchise. Yeah, worth mentioning um, that Peter Lamont was busy making Titanic, so that's why he couldn't come back as production designer, and he went on and won the uh, the Oscar for that one, didn't he? So um, I think mm. he made the right choice there. Yeah, um, I mean, looking at the cast. We have, uh, obviously, the big man, uh, Pierce Brosnan, is back as James Bond. Uh, and I actually didn't really think about this before, but in, in the in the book, in the making of book, they mentioned that he is basically the first James Bond actor to have um, had a big box office hit uh, whilst playing Bond. He's come to the film fresh from having starred in Dante's Peak. Um, so he he was riding high on that on that uh, crest of popularity from Bond and uh, had delivered another multi million dollar hit. So that's quite incredible for him. Uh, but yeah, he returns uh, as James Bond, um, and he put on twenty pounds of muscle from Goldeneye to this through training, and it shows. Uh, yes, he looks great in this. He really yeah. does. 
but uh, according to the, the 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 book he arrived on set suffering from flu so he was not uh, in the best of health when he arrived and also he'd undergone some knee surgery uh, the year previous which meant that they had to delay a lot of his action stuff to the end of the shoot interesting some f- fun trivia for her his son christopher was the third assistant director on this movie but it wasn't all plain sailing for Piers Brosnan, who suffered a serious facial injury while shooting this film uh, while at Frogmore Studios. Uh, he was hit in the face by the rim of a stuntman's metal helmet near the mouth, which caused a deep compression cut, which required eight internal stitches. And the show must go on. Um, but talking about the accident, uh, he, uh, Brosnan, did, would not put any blame on the stuntman, Steve Dent. He said, I didn't move in the right direction and lurched forward when I should have stayed back for another split second. He says, it came at a point when there have been non-stop action scenes and I must have just lost concentration. So the actor injuring themselves, I think, speaks volumes about the pace that they were working at here. Dent by name, Dent by nature, though. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, so they flew to Hamburg the next day and they had to shoot with Pierce's face turned away from the camera. There's a shot of him driving the car in Hamburg and it's from the side. They shoot it completely in profile so you can't see the cut on his on his lip. But they used a special latex adhesive called Prose to cover up the cut and then they had to put a bit of... They couldn't put too much makeup over it because it wouldn't have healed properly. But Brosnan later described the experience, the entire experience of making Tomorrow Never Dies as like pulling teeth which is not ideal. Then we've got Desmond Llewellyn back as uh, the 16th time as Q uh, and his scenes in Hamburg were shot in Hamburg while Pierce was there pr- promoting Dante's Peak. They basically took the opportunity to fly Desmond Llewellyn in, shoot his scenes in the airport while Pierce was passing through and that's that's the, the Q scene that we get. And then there's also some of him with the car in Stansted Airport as well, which I'll come to in a bit. But here's my favourite bit of trivia from this movie, which I learned uh, in researching this. Uh, when he is in disguise as an Avis car rental man, Q, he has a name badge. Do you know what his name is? No. Quinton Quigley. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought was absolutely beautiful. Um, I've never seen that trivia before, but I loved it. Quinton Quigley. Um, so Judy Dent, she was back as M for the second time. She took the script on holiday with her. When she returned back, she found it had been completely rewritten. <laughs> And as Jack mentioned, I don't think she had a lot of time for Roger Spottiswood. And there's that famous story of her running into him while they were doing ADR. Uh, and there was a bit of a tense encounter between the two of them. She said, I will not pretend everything was sweetness and light. The truth is it upset me dreadfully. Given my fear of filming anyway, the change lines made it particularly difficult to handle. Uh, but she was thrilled to be reunited with her acting friend, Jeffrey Palmer, who she obviously had worked with on time as time goes by and Mrs. Brown. I was just going to say she won a BAFTA. Mrs. Brown, yes, she did. Um, Samantha Bond returned for her second time playing Money Penny and said, in truth, it's a part I, I don't delve into too deeply. <laughs> uh, and then uh, probably my favourite returning cast member, Joe Don Baker, he's back as Jack Wade, uh, Bond's CIA liaison. Um, and so he um, shot his scenes where Bond is doing the halo jump. That's it. That's the returning cast. Yes, yeah, so we've got new cast. Um, we have the Bond girls. Uh, the very beginning we've got cecily thompson playing professor inga bergstrom um which uh, means money penny gets to deliver the line you always were a cunning linguist james um, 
but the her surname is a play on uh, is a parody of Stromberg, Carl Stromberg from The Spy Who Loved Me. So they just switch them around. Then we have uh, Terry Hatcher as Paris Carver, and uh, you can see the letter C for Carver. We covered both the Carvers under that, but um, yeah. So she's a former lover of Bond who is now um, Carver's trophy wife. At the time, she was three months pregnant when they started shooting. Um, and they said that the pregnancy wouldn't affect the production schedule, but it did. It led to her keeping Brosnan around on the set of Tomorrow Never Dies and uh, just, it all got too much for him. He said, I got very upset with her. She was always keeping me waiting for hours. I must admit, I let a few wo- let slip a few words which weren't very nice. Uh, and then he later found out that uh, she'd been suffering from morning sickness and he said it came out one morning that Terry was pregnant and she hadn't been feeling very well. Still, these things happen. So he's really sticking to his guns there. (laughs) It's not very Um, sympathetic at all. (laughs) I actually think that um, their relationship and probably the difficulties of the relationship off camera really help define that relationship. I think they, you can tell just how sad and Terry Hatcher's character, how sad Paris Carver is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Throughout the scenes, I actually think in some ways maybe their their lack of good relationship sort of has helped support her performance in this. Definitely. Yeah, it gives it that extra layer. Yeah. Um, she had later said that she regretted playing Paris Carver, saying it's such an artificial kind of character to be playing that you don't get any special satisfaction from it. Um, so at the time when she was cast, she was, uh, I don't know if she was still playing Lois Lane, but she had been very recently, at least, in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. But other, somebody else was in, in the frame, Monica Bellucci, and we've mentioned this before, she was screen tested. Um, and Brosnan said, the fool said no. So obviously he was championing Monica Bellucci. <laughs> but obviously she goes on to appear in Spectre. And then as the main Bond girl, we have Michelle Yeoh, and she plays Wei Lin. Uh, now, the character was originally written as Brit- a British character called Sydney Winch, who was going uh, to be associate of Harm's Way, who was the original villain that you spoke about, Tom. Um, but then as, as these rewrites and different ideas got discarded, and then they made it uh, being a, uh, set in Asia... Roger Spottiswood said, wouldn't it be more interesting if Bond's equal was a female Chinese agent? So, um, yeah, they went with Michelle Yeoh, who at the time she was an established uh, martial arts uh, cinema star and was recommended to Spottiswood by his nephew. Uh, They had to test together, Brosnan and Yeoh, and um, she said that she had to prove to the backers that Pierce and I did indeed have the right chemistry on screen. Um, she was going to play a character called Yin Pao, but she suggested that they change the name. She said Pao in Chinese means bun, one of those typical Bond names like Pussy Galore or Xenia on the top. So I came up with Wei Lin with a couple of girlfriends one night in Hong Kong. Wei means patriotic for the country. That I didn't mind. And so once, um, yeah, once she was cast... They rewrote the character to also take advantage of her martial arts skills. Um, probably not enough, though. They really could have utilised her more, I think. Um, Natasha Henstridge was somebody else who was rumoured to be cast as the lead role. Um, 
Brosnan was a big fan of Yo and said she's a wonderful actress who was serious and committed about her work. She also wanted to do all of her own stunts, but Roger Spottiswood wouldn't let her because he said it was too dangerous and the insurance wouldn't cover it, unfortunately. Um, but it's always good to see that the um, the cast wanting to really get involved, isn't it? It does make a difference. Just taking it back to Terry Hatcher, um, because I feel like their relationship, um, it, it's a bit of a talking point, isn't it, for the movie, how they fell out with Pierce Brosnan. But I think in her defence as well, with her being pregnant, I read that she'd flown, I think, what was it, flown from America and had like gone straight from the flight into shooting her first scenes. Um, so you can imagine she was quite tired and jet lagged while she was there as well. So, um, mm. um, but I think you can see the seeds of um, Christmas Jones being sowed here, right? They <laughs> cast an American star to bring in mm. the American audiences in this and then they just take it to the nth degree with Denise Richards in the next movie. So um, I think of the le- of the two, this is the lesser of the two evils, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so um, we've also got um, some villains to talk about. Here we go. There are some great options here. So the the main antagonist, obviously, of the piece is is Elliot Carver, Paris Carver's husband, uh, worldwide media baron, able to topple governments with a single broadcast. Uh, therein lies your problem, Mister Bond. You see, we're both men of action, but your era and Miss Lynn's is passing. Words are the new weapons. Satellites, the new artillery. And you become the new supreme allied commander? Exactly. Caesar had his legions, Napoleon had his armies. I have my divisions. TV, news, magazines. And by midnight tonight, I'll have reached and influenced more people than anyone in the history of this planet, save God himself. And the best he ever managed was a Sermon on the Mount. You really are quite insane. The distance between insanity and genius is measured only by success. Absolutely wonderfully played, I think, by Jonathan Price, who leaves no scenery unchewed. I think he's... uh, I think Jonathan Price is is fantastic in this, and it's really really nice to see uh, a Bond villain having just a really great time all the interviews that i that i've found from him just seemed that he just had the best time that it was a really good opportunity for him to come along and and just really enjoy himself he also found the script frustrating uh, and he said you know when i read the original script you know it, it it was quite excited and it changed so much throughout the process that by the time he got to the end of the of the script writing process, it wasn't quite the character that he thought it was going to be. But he thought, well, what I like about it is that my motivation is still the same, you know, and I just want that unbridled power. So, uh, you know, and, and, and that world domination. So he, I think he quite enjoyed himself playing this. Brosnan, was, Brosnan said when he initially got the part that... He, when he found out Jonathan Price had got the part, that he was really, really thrilled. He says, you need someone really good as a baddie, someone to pull out all the stops, which he does with Panache. So clearly he was he was popular on set. And uh, I think he I think he does a good job here. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, it's a broad, it's a broad performance, I think is the best way to put it. <laughs> but it's a memorable one, let's just say. And there are enough Bond villains out there that aren't that memorable. Um, so yeah, I'll take it. Mm. I like his uh, one-handed typing. It's ridiculous. There's no way he's typing. 
but mm. uh, it's, it's always good to see. Absolutely hammering the keyboard. British Secret Service agent James Bond and his collaborator Wei Lin of the Chinese People's External Security Force were found dead this morning in Vietnam. Lacks punch, don't you think? Oh, it's old news, Elliot. We've been working together for months. Both our governments know what you and General Chang are up to. <laughs> But um, alongside every great Bond villain, there has to be a, a great henchman. Um, now, I'm going to call you out here, Brendan, actually. Oh. Uh, because um, in the most in the recent Top Trumps-inspired episode, you couldn't remember who Stamper was. Mm, I know. And, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, he's... Uh, He's a classic henchman in a way, isn't he? In that red Grant vein, you know, big, blonde, brutish, and um, played by Gotts Otto. And uh, famously, you know, Gotts Otto is given, he walks into the casting office and, and Debbie Williams says to Barbara, that happens to be on the phone, or oh, I've got, you know, I've got a tall, big, good looking German guy here, you know. And she says, you've got 20 seconds to, to cast. And he says, oh, I can. I can do it in five, <laughs> you know. And he said, "I'm big, I'm bad, I'm German," and that was that was that was his audition <laughs> for for the part, um, you know. And he is like, he's, like I say, a classic um, Bond villain in the sense of you know blonde hair. And one of the things I'd never noticed before in my however many times of watching it is that he's got different coloured eyes. Did you know this? Yeah, we read. I talked about this. I think so. He's uh, also um, linked to another one of the villains in the film. Uh, Dr. Kaufman is a is a protege of uh, of the assassin, Dr. Kaufman. But he's he's very integral to the film actually, and I feel really sorry for Stamper in this film. He seems like the kind of guy who who really loves killing people and he really loves causing <laughs> mischief. But because he's good at that, he's been promoted to a management level, and then he finds it hard for all the people who work for him to follow it through. <laughs> So yeah, Stamper is uh, is quite key in the film, and obviously there is the uh, the fight at the end where he you know lowers Waylin into the into the sea to fight to fight Bond, and Bond has to make the choice, and obviously manages to to save the day and do both. But originally, and uh, the role of, of Stamper was that he was going to be um, a freelance mercenary, and his father was uh, Nepalese and had been conscripted by the British government to fight in in China after the after World War Two. So his character changed dramatically from that first draft. And also that as part of that same character that he was going to have a brain injury that caused uh, pleasure to be registered as pain and vice versa in mm. the Renard <laughs> world is not enough vein. So obviously reusing previous ideas for future films is is quite common uh, in the in the Bond canon. Um, other quick notable mentions are uh, Henry Gupta. Uh, so Henry Gupta is the is the techno terrorist who um, ha- who st- who is asked by Elliot Carver to go and buy the encoder uh, at the start of the film from the terrorist car boot. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole here because, and I know that you covered 
Ricky Jay on who's the actor who plays Henry Gupta previously, but he was a, a sleight of hand magician, and they built that into the script, even though it wasn't finally used. Where um, he he throws some playing cards at at different people and at the wall in order to try and fend them off, which I thought was quite a nice <laughs> a, a nice trick. Um, and then finally, the uh, is Doctor Kaufman, who uh, is a professor of forensic medicine. He likes to make, he makes that very clear, uh, and he's hired to uh, to kill Paris and Elliot, uh, Paris and James Bond after uh, Elliot finds out that uh, Paris has betrayed him, uh, and he he talks a lot about how professional he is, and he also. Um, claims that he's a, an expert in the celebrity overdose. But um, Vincent Schiavelli said that, you know, playing a baddie in the Bond film, even if it's not the baddie, means that I'll always be remembered. And I actually think he's the least memorable <laughs> of the of the baddies in this. That's unfair. I think he's great. I think he, he comes out like he's from a completely different movie. My name is Dr. Kaufman. I am an outstanding pistol marksman. Take my word for it, yeah? It's a pity you got her involved in all this. It won't look like a suicide if you shoot me from over there. I am a professor of forensic medicine. Believe me, Mr. Bond, I could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. <laughs> it, is, it is a very it's a it's a very sharp movement away from what we've had. And it's a real difficult juxtaposition, actually, between him, him, and then that there's that really passionate, overly long kiss of Paris Barber's face after she's dead. But taking it back to Ricky Jay, Ricky Jay was a really famous magician at the time. So the the fact that they cast him to do magic and then they didn't he didn't do any magic is quite funny (laughs) in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so they're the uh, they're the the main villains in. In Tomorrow Never Dies. You really fell down a villain rabbit hole there, didn't you? You really did. <laughs> yeah. It was. It, the thing is, I think that's, for me, that's what makes a Bond film. The Bond film is only as good as the villain. And it's mm. what, what else as well I found as I, was, as I was researching all the... You mentioned it briefly earlier, I think, Tom, but the link between this film, as Brosnan's second film, and Man with a Golden Gun into Roger Moore's second film, the, the, the villains are very similar in a way. It's almost that they've got a, an idea for a character and they've just let them run with it. And both of them, I think, do a really good job with a limited script. Um, and obviously both um, links to Asia. So I thought it was quite interesting that the links between that sort of that transition phase for for both Moore and for, for Brosnan. Hmm. So in terms of villains, uh, going from villains to allies, from a rich seam of villains, there's not a great uh, seam of uh, allies to talk about. Obviously, we talked about Admiral Roebuck, played by Jeffrey Palmer, good friends with um, Judy Dench. Uh, Charles Robinson, uh, he was brought in, um, played by Colin Salmon, talked about him at length recently, so I won't talk about much about him, but he was a replacement for Tanner as Michael Kitchen was unavailable to return. But some good sort of uh, before they were famous type cameos uh, here. You've got Julian Fellows, who was the Oscar, who would go on to be the Oscar winning writer of Gosford Park and the creator of Downton Abbey. He plays the Minister of Defence. 
And then you've also got some impressive before they were famous cameos from Gerard Butler, Hugh Bonneville and Jason Watkins on the uh, the Devonshire and the HMS Bedford as well. But my favourite um, ally slash cameo in this movie is Al Matthews, who plays the sergeant who briefs James Bond before the halo jump because he was Apone in Aliens, which always surprises me when I see him. Um, but I love that. Um, so a, a small roster of, of allies. Uh, obviously, the main one is Joe Don Baker, but we've talked about him already. All right, sweethearts, you heard the man and you know the drill. Assholes and elbows. Hudson, come here. Come here. Yes, so into production. And for the pre-tartal sequence, it's off to the French Pyrenees. On the 18th of January, 1997. Now, going back to what you said about the script, finalised August 1997. Isn't that crazy? That yeah. they, are, they are basically making a film. They don't know what it's going to look like at all. Well, before you start, actually, just something I learned from the commentary is that when uh, Roger Spottiswood uh, came onto the, the, the film, he said that they had four scenes that they knew would definitely happen. The pre-title sequence, the car chase, the bike chase. He didn't actually specify what the fourth one was, but he said that's all that the production had to work with while they figured out the rest of the script. And this was one of the uh, like um, immovable uh, moments in the movie that stayed the same, basically. So it makes sense to get it get it in the can doesn't it um yeah. yeah so this cost 11 million dollars to shoot so vic armstrong he directed the second unit and um it's about four minutes in length so it's it's a pricey pre sequence um and it was shot at the Sword balatestas airport uh, in the french pyrenees and it was standing in for afghanistan um so the the plane that Bond steals um, is is a weapons an Albatross weapons jet trainer, and it was a British company that supplied that. It was flown by stunt pilots uh, Tony Taft Smith and Mark Hanna. Um, so the, it, it was chosen because it's a resort with one of the few mountain airports in the Pyrenees, um, and they could make it look like an Afghan camp uh, at the foot of the runways. Um, so January 1997, 250 technicians and 50 actors and stuntmen. So, you know, 300 people just, they turn up with 50 tonnes of equipment, 20, <laughs> 20 war vehicles, and, and the uh, of course, the aircraft from the 80s. Um, there's an 80s aircraft called the L-39. So in addition to that, um, other people were brought by road uh, and parked at the airport. So they had to make improvements to the station because it couldn't even accommodate passenger aircraft. So they weren't able to actually get there until the improvements were made. Um, So after they'd done that work, uh, they moved to Portsmouth where the Royal Navy prepares to engage the trainees and the HMS Westminster stands in for the Type 23 frigates that are in the story. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a... Where does four minutes stand on in terms of pre-title sequence, lengthwise? Oh, it's got to be one of the shorter ones, right? It feels like it's a short one, doesn't it? Yeah. And it originally had an ice, ice, frozen waterfall climb before it as well, I think. Okay. That was cut, so it was originally a bit longer. Bond was climbing up the icy mountain or something to get to uh, there but um before he gets I, to the bazaar 
Yeah, but it makes yeah. more sense that they that you don't know Bond's there. I think it's more surprising, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting in this scene as well that he um, he says filthy habit, and then two films later goes on to smoke a cigar. <laughs> smoke a lot of cigars, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and that for yeah. this sequence, they then went on to pick up later on, right? So they shot a lot of this second unit, and then went later and added Bro- Brosnan back in with close-ups, I guess. Yeah, back back in the UK. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? Yeah, so um, back in the UK, there were there were issues with the studio, as mentioned right at the beginning. So that Goldeneye had been filmed at Leavesden, and they'd converted that from an abandoned Rolls Royce factory. But Leavesden had got new ownership, and had been renamed Millennium Studios. And communication between Millennium Studios and the Bond production had sort of broken down, and the team, the production team expected to get the go-ahead for filming at Leavesden on Friday the 23rd of August 1996, but were told on the 22nd of August that the Star Wars Phantom Menace would be filming there instead. So Michael Wilson said, you know, we felt badly let down as we put that place on the map and United Artists said, you know, we were disappointed, we were certain we'd had it wrapped up, but uh, we weren't certain that it had been wrapped up, but we felt out of loyalty they'd have gone with us. Um, so that meant that location manager Richard Sharkey had to find somewhere for them to film. So there, he says there were issues with the script and now no studio. It was literally the 11th hour and I discovered this old supermarket warehouse. It was by no means ideal, but it was the best of anything we'd seen. And that turned out to be Frogmore Studios. They uh, were able to uh, take over three the site of three businesses. So as part of where the, the warehouse was, the supermarket warehouse, there was also an office block and an airfield, which was useful for the close-ups and other bits for <laughs> for the filming of the for the pre-title sequence. And uh, it was the, they were given the green light for Frogmore, and they had to get the studio up and running in eight weeks. Um. Uh, they went around saying, you know, Richard Chuck said that, you know, went round and scribbled what we wanted, but I'm not an architect. The most I've ever built is a barbecue. We just had to work it out as we went. <laughs> so uh, the cost com- completion was was two million pounds to convert uh, to convert the warehouse and the office block and other and other parts of the site, and it was completed on the seventh of January 1997. And everybody uh, who was employed to put the the put the um, work in place, worked through Christmas. And then um, extra space had been booked at, at Elstree and at Pinewood, uh, particularly the double O stage for the, for the stealth boat bits um, at later on in, later on in the production. So yeah, it was, it was hard work getting a, getting a studio, but you know, to turn it around in, in, in such a short period of time and working all the way through Christmas, clearly people were committed to the, committed to the project. 
So from one setback to the other, um, Vietnam. So location manager Nigel Goldsack, he scouted Asian locations across the world uh, to shoot, including Indonesia, India, Japan, Malaysia and Thailand. But Hanoi in Vietnam was chosen for the main location for for um, for shooting on Tomorrow Never Dies. And it was going to be the first American movie to shoot there since the war. But in the last minute, the government there decided to ban the film from shooting there. And they were told two days after a container ship with all their equipment had left for Vietnam. So the equipment was en route and the crew were waiting to fly out there. So the ship had to be diverted to Singapore. And they basically had to scrabble around to try and figure out where they could shoot. Thanks to Vic Armstrong, uh, Roger Spottiswood and Alan Cameron, having all recently worked in Bangkok and in Thailand, they said, Thailand, that's the only place we can do it. So they switched it within three days. So from being cancelled in Hanoi, within three days, they did, they found and set up shop in Bangkok, which is unbelievable, really. Um, and so that would then double for this unnamed Vietnamese city. Why it was cancelled at the last minute, it's not really clear, but there is suggestion that the Ministry of Culture in um, uh, Vietnam had agreed to cooperate, but the Ho Chi Minh City's People's Committee were upset by the Golden Eyes negative portrayal of communism, you know, in the title sequences, the smashing of the hammer and the sickle. Apparently they saw that and just absolutely uh, changed their mind. Um, the official reason is that there was many complicated reasons. But anyway, Bangkok, filming began in Bangkok in May 1997 in 42 degree centigrade temperatures, which Brosnan found very uncomfortable, even reportedly telling one journalist, welcome to the arsehole of the world when they arrived. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Yeoh, she was on set and she said that uh, this is a great quote from Michelle. I love this. Hong Kong films are very well known for being haphazard. The scripts are never ready. It gets handed to you on the set. They are always changing things. And sometimes the writer is still writing things on the set. So I felt right at home from the moment I started. And now we're in Asia. I feel like I've never left which is such a great quote. Bruce Fierstein was there. He was holed up in a hotel room working on the script, sometimes receiving call sheets from four or five locations around the world. He said, I'm not entirely happy, but I think things are getting better. So it's an undercurrent of of, uh, dreadfulness going on. Um, But yeah, I mean, some of Bangkok, the city streets were recreated on Frogmore um, by Alan Cameron, which is, I think, is an amazing piece of set work, as as, as, as we've seen before. Um, but there was one fun story when they were shooting around Phuket, in the, which doubled for the South China Sea. There was an incident where Pierce and some of the crew got shipwrecked on Phuket on a sandbank and they had to be rescued by a unit publicist. But while they were waiting, Brosnan, Michelle Yeoh, the hair and makeup and costume team, they basically cracked open the beers and spent the night dancing, swimming in the sea um, with uh, Pierce Brosnan's assistant filming the whole event on his camcorder. So Adrian Bell, if you're out there, and you've got this footage. We want to see it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so May 12th, 1997, the first and second units, they travel to Thailand and they start to shoot the motorbike chase sequence. And as soon as they landed, Vic Armstrong, he was looking at the skyline and he said, we saw these two big tenement blocks who went up on the roof and they were absolutely perfect. We did 75% of the sequence on location. We then built replica rooftops of of the street we had built at Frogmore for what we couldn't do in Bangkok. 
So in this scene, obviously, we've got Bond and Waylin handcuffed to each other. Uh, they're trying to evade uh, Range Rovers and a helicopter. Waylin is the... She's trying to help him navigate while they fire. In terms of the bike, Vic Armstrong, he said his heart sank when he first saw the BMW bike. He said it was huge. But he did go on to say, however... In the end, it made the sequence original. It was all wrong for the job, not the sort of machine usually associated with chases or stunts. Yeah, so you'd usually use something like a, a motocross bike. A scrambler, really, yeah. Yeah, springy suspension. Which, yeah, he said that those sort of bikes are convenient for jumps and tricks, but instead we went for the biggest, heaviest a most unwieldy bike, the BMW R1200C Cruiser. And I built the chase around that. That's what I wanted to display its power and its weight. And the chase sequence, you know, it's it's an iconic piece of stunt driving. Um, French stunt rider Jean-Pierre Goy, now he refused to use wires and cables for when he made that 40-foot 44 foot leap between the two buildings over the um, the helicopter they worked out what sort of speeds uh, it would have to reach so 62 miles an hour um, in 5.8 seconds and he went along a wooden ramp which had been constructed 45 feet in the air Um, so obviously Jean-Pierre is on the bike and he's got a model of Wei Lin clinging to him um, so it crashes through the balcony from the 45-foot height. It clears the street and then it drops 12 feet onto a building opposite. So that building, you know, obviously it's edited in the film, but um, it, he actually landed on the 20-foot high mountain of cardboard boxes and that's what they used to break his fall. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. So the blades of the helicopter, um, they weren't actually spinning around. That was added in post um, don't need to make it more dangerous than it already is, do you? <laughs> um, but the yeah, the the jump, it's it's incredible, and there were people gathered around when they did it because they it was just such an unbelievable feat, and you know people were all scared, you know they wanted to see it, you know it was, it was a number of different things, but um, yeah, it's it's not a bike like Vic Armstrong said, that he's designed for anywhere near this sort of thing. And I think it took Jean-Pierre eight weeks to learn how to wheelie on it. You know, it's 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 a difficult machine. So yeah, the, there was a massive crowd. They had carpenters, electricians, the catering, office staff. Barbara Broccoli was there, Michael G. Wilson, um, UA chief, uh, Bruce um, Fierstein. Basically anyone involved with the film is there because they want to see it. Um, also, an ambulance is, is there on, on hand, <laughs> just just in case. Um, uh, one of the ambulance men actually asked for some vehicles to be moved so they can get a stretcher through fast, should it be necessary. Pierce Brosnan is lifted up, um, so he can take in the stunt as well. So, yeah, it, it goes off, and uh, stunt coordinator Dickie Beer... He is lowered, he goes down at the end after Jean-Pierre has landed in the cardboard boxes and everyone, you know, breathes a sigh of relief. 
because he comes out with Jean-Pierre intact. And I think the only damage to the bike was uh, the front glass and the reg plate. I think the only two bits of damage to the bike, which is wow. incredible. But yeah, he, he survived it. And um, Vic Armstrong was obviously relieved. Um, Dickie Beer wanted to do it using cables and a track attached to the bike. But you know, Jean-Pierre wants to do it properly. Uh, Jean-Pierre never drives bikes on public roads because he thinks they're unsafe. That's, <laughs> that's incredible, isn't it? Uh, um, but Jean-Pierre, you know, he he loved the challenge um, and, he, and he got it done. And it is incredible to watch and, and to think it's done. I think I took it for granted when I, when I saw it. You just assume it's not done for real. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. As any good Bond villain should have, there are a number of Bond villain locations. So um, Carver's got two main points of operation. Um, uh, the stealth boat which uh, as a young boy watching this film for the first time was absolutely incredible. Um, and an office block, which is less exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so Carver's, uh, Carver's stealth boat um, was inspired by some of the, the US stealth bombers, um, you know, very sleek. Uh, secret looking and Alan Cameron was very keen to to claim ownership of the design of what the stealth boat looked like um, although John Richardson the miniatures uh, a miniatures supervisor uh, found it very challenging because the, every time he tried to build a model the design had changed uh, which he found very frustrating so um, Alan Cameron also said about it you know I don't when it comes to things like this, don't try to create reality. I think it's a huge waste of money and effort. I just I try to create an atmosphere rather than having every detail right. Um, and considering the design of the the, the the stealth boat had changed a number of times, it felt like that wasn't quite accurate that description. Um, but um, it was very. Uh, it was it was filmed at uh, the 007 stage in Pinewood as a static boat, uh, as a static ship, and it was it was built to one eighth scale, uh, weighed three and a half tons, and weigh and I, I saw different reports here, but so, some say thirty foot, some say fifty five foot, but a quite a big piece of a, a kit in terms of uh, the model upon which it is filmed. Um, John Richardson said that some things, you know. You can't do for you can't do for real, and um, when it came to the stealth boat, the Royal Navy had the good decency to let us shoot on side it, but uh, on the site uh, on site, but not actually sink a frigate. So um, when it came to to filming uh, the the stealth boat, that was done at the same tank in by Studios in Mexico that was done for James Cameron's Titanic. So uh, they they had the models there, and the stealth boat is obviously uh, you know the key the key part of Carver's operation to create dissension between the Chinese and the and the British forces, and um, you know one of the things that they that they found hard in terms of when they were shooting it was that John Richard said said it was really hard work. We were working with black water at night with a stealth ship it was it was really the set had to be lit perfectly so we could see what we're going what was going on but it was very difficult 
So I can I can see that as an idea, um, it, I think it's been executed very well, uh, considering the, the the stresses that went into to try and get in the getting it just right. Um, there's also um, the second HQ is, that Carver has is obviously his office building and his print works. So he's got a complex in in Hamburg, which is where the party takes place and the launch of the of the Carver Media uh, News Group, and uh, that was filmed uh, at the IBM head, uh, the IBM headquarters uh, near. Heathrow and the printing works inside was filmed um, at the Financial Times building and also at, Ham- at Harmsworth Key Printers just outside Surrey. There's also um, a Carver news group in Hong Kong, which is where the banner scene takes place, the stunt where James Bond and Wei Lin hold on to this to the banner and slide all the way down, as as mentioned earlier. And uh, that was for uh, filmed at the Sin Southern Tower in the, in Bangkok, but the stunt work was done at Frogmore by again Wendy Leach doubling for um, doubling for Wei Lin, and she says I was hoisted 120 feet above the ground at Frogmore. It was an odd feeling. I looked down and saw nothing but the ground itself, a pile of cardboard boxes to break the fall if anything should go wrong. So it feels like they bought in a lot of cardboard boxes for stunt work. <laughs> it seemed that that was the way the way in which harm was minimised. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I really like the stealth boat. I think it's a really cool idea. And as a kid, I thought it was it, it was brilliant. Um, one of the things that is is odd though that at the beginning, where it, where they sink where they sink the British ship, it, it is reasonably light and the stealth ship is quite close <laughs> something fun i learned about the interiors is that the interior when they're at mi6 hq at the start when they're watching bond and the white knight stuff they actually use the same set again for uh, carver's um, media center as well so they just turn the set round put different screens up and it's the same set and i think they oh. use it a third time as well in the movie it's uh yeah it's a clever bit of uh of um, design, you know, to save time on having to build all these different sets, they just use the same set, turn it round, and film from a different angle. Which I thought was quite. See, cool. Ken, Adam, really like... Ken Adam was wasteful. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I really like about the uh, the interior of the of the Carver uh, building in in Hamburg is all of the screens where he's having the meeting with his his global minions and talking about releasing the the tape of the president with the cheerleader, and then when Stamper calls. Stamper's face is on all of the screens of different sizes, which is completely <laughs> unnecessary. Like, he, rather than just have him on one screen, he's just filled on 50 screens. <laughs> yeah, I do love that. Right. So, I mean, filming's just about to wrap up, but I'm just going to speak about one more really impressive action sequence, and that is the uh, the driverless car chase. So in June 97, the first and, first and second unit spend three weeks filming in Brent Cross, Brent Cross Shopping Centre, and it's levels four and five of the multi-storey car park if you want to make a pilgrimage there, and that doubles for the car park in, in Hamburg. The production painted it white for the movie. They spent all this time painting it white, and the day before, they decided it looked better grey. So 45 men had to spend the entire weekend repainting it grey. So 
Um, Brosnan had expressed a disappointment that his BMW gadget car hadn't been used in GoldenEye. So he was obviously very happy to find that his Bond car in this one would have gadgets and he would get to use it. And it was a BMW 750iL. And Vic Armstrong really wanted to make something special, something different, added lots of different little twists and bits of humour to it as well. So it's a big deal for BMW at the time, this car. It was the, the first car to market in Europe with a screen for a sat-nav and it cost £73,500 at the time, which in today's money is £132,000, which is mind-blowing, really. Yeah. And they used 17 of these cars in the film, but they didn't actually use the real car that they were purporting to be in the movie. So I just want to give a shout-out to a listener called Liam Heitman Rice-Lemercier, who shared way too much detail with us about this car in a lengthy email to the show but thank you Liam we really appreciate it Liam had done a feature for a BMW car magazine um, and he'd done an interview with um, a, a, a journalist called Jason Barlow and this issue is still on sale if you want to check it out and so Jason Barlow told him that the 750IL was BMW's flagship model at the time fitted with a 5.4 litre V12 so it was really expensive and the accepted story is that BMW gave the Bond production a cheaper, smaller engine, 740 IL units um, that were then rebadged. But um, Liam found out from Jason that actually what they were really given was that the uh, the entry level 728 IL uh, units, the very cheapest variants. Um, and so, uh, I mean, probably because they were so much cheaper. But what you hear on screen sound like the V8 powered 740 model. Um, because apparently the actual top top of the line 750IL sounded more like a limousine. It was a very gentle, luxurious car. So thank you, Liam, for all the detail on that. I really would recommend you check out that article in uh, the BMW car magazine. But yeah, so you've got 17 cars. Four of them, um, actually, up to I think up to about seven of them were adapted so that they could be driven from the back seat. And the stunt driver, Steve Griffin, used cameras and screens to navigate. Some of these 17 cars, uh, so some of these uh, driverless cars had, were the gadget cars. So they had one that had the reinflating tires, one that had the ro roof rockets, one that had the spikes. There were six of these 17 cars were pristine and they were for backup and exterior shots only. But they were battle damaged from the chase as well. So they were pristine, but they were made to look damaged. One of these 17 cars was in Hamburg just for the establishing shot. One one entire BMW was used just for the one moment where the glove compartment slides out. That's another BMW. Um, and in total, they to they destroyed about four or five of these BMWs in shooting this sequence. The car that's driven off the top of the car park into the Avis car rental window, they used a air cannon to shoot a full-size car off the top that had been stripped out of all the engine and all the seats and everything, so it was really light. And what you see in midair is a John Richardson miniature. And then when it hits the car rental place, it's full size again. Um, so while they were shooting at Brent Cross, a local uh, person, a concerned local called the fire brigade when they saw smoke pouring from the car park. And they had to tell them, no, we're shooting a James Bond film here instead. One other thing to note about this sequence, which I think is great, is that it features the first James Bond mobile phone, which is the Sony Ericsson JB988, which was not a real model of a mobile phone at the time. Um, but there were four different phones that used on screen and like the car, they all had different gadget functionalities. One was a light up screen. One had the stunt, uh, the stun gun function. One had a fingerprint scanner 
and then one was the stat the, the, the flip open stunt phone which they use in the back of the car um, but a functioning version of it with all the different gadgets was actually built in 2021 for the mobile phone museum so you can check that out online um, but yeah I mean that was basically the, the big stunt um, from there and so after 23 seven day weeks shooting 16 hours a day tomorrow never dies wrapped on the 5th of September 1997 with just three months of post-production to finish the film and get it in cinemas Spottiswood, like we said, is an editor and he worked with the husband and wife editors, Michael Arkand and Dominic Fortin. And it was going to be that it was the first Bond film to be edited digitally and they were editing it as they were shooting it. So both editors were working on it at the same time simultaneously. And it was from two to three weeks from wrapping the film to showing it for the first time in a preview, which is unbelievable, mm. really. Um uh, Roger Spottiswood uh, pushed for it to, to be a two-hour movie and they held a preview of the movie in Slough and Roger Spottiswood said it was the worst preview he'd ever had. He said the crowd did not react. They did not enjoy the film. So uh, not a good start to that post-production. No, but it's time for some music. Uh, it's time to get John Barry back. Mm. His fee at the time was $1 million. and uh, But he was willing to take a significant reduction to actually do this. And it, the deal was... They thrashed out a deal to have a contract for $850,000. And then Barry would pay a chunk back to the filmmakers. And that was to make make sure that John Barry's fee didn't drop so for future products he wasn't getting undercut um but the deal breaker was that mgm and united artists they were not willing to allow john barry to write the title song yeah probably not tried and tested enough right (laughs) madness um so he said in december 97 there were several areas that were non-negotiable i wasn't going to regress and uh i think that's fair enough you know from what we've covered on the podcast it's always better when john barry's got his sort of control over the over the title song yeah um so david arnold who had been discussed uh regarding composing goldeneye um but he was uh, he said at that point they had already signed eric serra so i knew i wasn't going to be doing that but I said, if John Barry is not going to be involved, then I would love to do it. Now, David Arnold's got a number of theories as to how he actually got got the role. Um, one of them is that uh, John Barry had suggested to Michael and Barbara that he would be someone that you could trust. But he had recently uh, made an album of Bond covers, Shaken and Stirred the David Arnold James Bond project. And uh, apparently Barbara Michael had heard heard that and they were using Honor Majesty's Secret Service um, for their for the car park chase as a, as a temp track. Um, uh, there's another one where Barbara Broccoli is in a record shop and she's buying scores to try and work out how Tomorrow Never Dies should sound. The shop assistant recommends David Arnold 
Um, he says, if it is true, there is a shop assistant somewhere that I owe a very large drink or a very small house. But uh, he ultimately says that Independence Day 1996 would have been, you know, which with for which he won a Grammy would probably be a major factor in that. He said, all of a sudden I went from being the next John Williams to the next John Barry because I was doing a Bond film. Um, and he said that he aims to make it a classic sound with a modern approach. So, he, you know, you can hear that in, in the soundtrack where he combines uh, techno um, along with that classic Bond sound. Um, and if you if you listen, I mean, what film would you say it borrows most from from, from the past? Never Let Die. So he's cited from Russia With Love. Oh. Yeah. Um, the score was done across a period of six months. So Arnold wrote the music and he kept revising it as he received the edited footage. So as you say, the editing it on the hoof, he's getting it every day, updated it. So he's got to be on the ball as well. Um, yeah, the, the music for that car chase um, was co-written by with the band Propellerheads. And obviously they'd worked on that for On A Majesty's Secret Service, uh, the, the cover. Um, but yeah, the reviews for this, this soundtrack, uh, an excellent tribute to entire series of Bond score. Um, and David Arnold said that, we finished recording the last session and Michael G. Wilson came up to me and said, don't do anything in two years time. I took that as an invitation to do the next one. And I have to say, it's an absolute breath of fresh air from from what came before, <laughs> from Eric Serra's absolute abomination. Um, uh, it's well, great to and get license to kill, I would say. Yeah, so we're on the back of two, you know, pretty ropey Bond scores, um, and to get a, you know, if it's not going to be John Barry, then who else? But, who, but where to go? But that, David Arnold. Go on. Having said that, the. Uh the Moby reworking does show that it can be done, that electronic can be done and done well. Bond. James Bond. Hmm. Yeah, it, it can. Yeah. Just yeah. uh, that Eric Serra missed the mark dramatically. <laughs> yeah, well, he refused to use the Bond theme. I think that's, that's probably where he went wrong. <laughs> well, I think David Arnold overcompensates a little bit here because he uses the Bond theme a lot. Um, but I mean, it's it works, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it's needed. Yeah, and one of and one of the other themes that he uses is also from the KD Lang song "Surrender," which mm-hmm. uh, David Arnold also wrote for the film as a potential uh, theme song um which is actually plays over the end credits and was not not selected for but the motif for surrender is contained within the score as well um but you know before the song was you know given to Cheryl Crow it was they solicited the tracks from a number of artists including the cardigans who declined and then Saint Etienne, and also Pulp, which I I hadn't heard before. Apparently, it's a B side for their Help the Aged single, but it that's entitled Tomorrow Never Lies, based on the 
original <laughs> the original name of the script and i uh, i was absolutely mesmerized and baffled by it yeah that, you know they're, they're such an odd you know an odd choice aren't they for uh, you know very much of the zeitgeist i think they of the zeitgeist yeah head, yeah they'd headlined glastonbury and they in replacement of or, or quite recently and critically acclaimed but just a very odd fit but yeah so eventually tomorrow never dies it was given to Cheryl Crow which she co-wrote with Mitchell Froome and that is became the theme song uh, to, to, to Tomorrow Never Dies um, it was actually nominated for an award Academy Award but but lost mm-hmm. to uh, My Heart Will Go On yeah absolutely yeah so uh, again no competing with uh, <laughs> Titanic uh, at any point um, but there seems to, there seem to be some conflicting reports about whether um, David Arnold had written uh, the song uh, uh, performed by KD Lang either for the titles or whether it had been done afterwards. And and I saw an interview with David Arnold that just said, you know, I'd, that they'd already the deal had already been agreed with Cheryl Crow at the time that he'd written the the, the, the track uh, Surrender. So he was just look. He said, I was lucky that they let me use Surrender over the end credits. It was really nice. You know they they didn't have to do that, so uh, but there seems to be some conflicting information about whether it was written specifically for as the title theme. I don't know if you guys find anything. No, I mean was... if John Barry wasn't going to be allowed to write the, t- the title song, then John, David Arnold certainly wasn't, was he? So I, I yeah, kind well, of, they had. I um... kind of believe him on that. He wrote it uh, and well, sort of hoped for the best. I think. Yeah, yeah they were saying that it was. Um, you know, obviously, they'd had success previously with different singer-songwriters writing different songs for the score, uh, different songs that didn't appear in the score, and all the score had been adapted from them to sort of freshen up the ideas. So I think they were quite keen to keep the, the singer-songwriter separate. Um, but yeah, it was. I think Surrender is the better song by quite a way. I agree. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Tomorrow never dies. I don't, no, no offense to Cheryl Crow. I, I, I do quite like Cheryl Crow, but um, and, and the song, but it's just not, it's just not a Bond song, is it really? No, the, it, it hasn't got the pomp, has it? That the no, you know, the the brass section for Surrender is is fantastic, and when you hear it, you know the motif through, throughout the film, it gives you that, it sucks you in, doesn't it? Going, this is this is a Bond film, like I know where I where I am, which Cheryl Crow's theme song doesn't do as well, even no. though I do like it. So that that theme song plays over Daniel Kleinman's titles. He returned for his second Bond titles, and these have a sort of uh, cyberspace X-ray theme. Couldn't find out a huge amount about them uh, other than uh, a company called Acrylic. Uh, sorry, a company called Asylum was hired to manufacture the acrylic models of the guns and the watch. So when you see the inside of the um, the gun and the watch. They've made plastic models of them and they've just used a filter to, to make them look like x-rays. So I thought that was quite interesting. But it's sort of, uh, you've got um, circuitry and x-rays, um, it's sort of modern day media, I guess. And Kleinman uh, 
uh, said uh, in an interview that he didn't get uh, much help from Roger Spottiswood. And his quote is, he was a sort of bombastic man who liked to think he was some sort of Caesar. So, uh, <laughs> and he also felt that Roger Spottiswood didn't like his work on the titles. And in fact, he didn't want his name on the sequence. So when you watch the sequence, Roger Spottiswood's name appears after the titles have finished. Yeah. And it's on the first frames of the feature, which is interesting. Yeah, I noticed that when I rewatched it the other day. I thought it's a really odd place for it to be. It was almost like a, a mic drop at the end. I felt <laughs> it did feel very odd, it being there. Yeah. So that's apparently the reason for it. So there you have it. But that's it. That's it. Let's wrap up the film. I mean, it's been a marathon sprint to get there. Um, but uh, yeah, when do they when do they release it to the world, Brendan? Well, I just want to touch on that test audience that you talked about. Yes. Because you said, how long was it? Three weeks after? Two to three weeks, yeah. Two apparently. to three weeks. Because that quote, he said it was one of the worst previews. He said, everyone seemed to be asleep. Not a single laugh, not a titter, not a gasp. I thought we were at a funeral. MGM said it was terrific. I was absolutely shocked. We didn't change very much. So from what he's saying, they didn't change much from three weeks after. Didn't have time. <laughs> That's it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, um, so before the release, just going to take it slightly back a bit. Just a few weeks before, United Artists are dealt a massive blow. On the 14th of October, 1997... Now, if you remember the former United Artists chief, John Kelly, who had gone to Sony and Columbia Pictures, and he said Columbia were planning to activate a James Bond motion picture franchise based on the story rights owned by... Oh, Kevin McClory. Kevin McClory. <laughs> yes, he's back. Ring the klaxon. So, John Kelly had said, although there was no completed script, no director, no star, I mean, it sounds like Tomorrow Never Dies, isn't it? Um, Sony planned to launch this franchise in 1999 with Kevin McClory as the producer. Now, John Kelly knew that the rights, McClory's rights well, because he was a, a production executive at Warner Brothers when Never Say Never Again was made. So, you know, it's all tangling this horrible web. Um, MGM president, Frank Mancuso, he said, any claim that McClory can create a James Bond franchise is delusional. We hope that Sony has not been duped by Mr. McClory's deception. Today, more than ever, we will vigorously pursue all means to protect the valued franchise that United Artists and the Broccoli family have nurtured for more than three decades. So in November 1997, MGM filed a $25 million lawsuit against Sony and John Kelly. Um, and John Kelly was heavily involved in uh, GoldenEye. So this is like a real blow. It's a big blow, this. Um so yeah, they, they were MGM rep, represented by Pierce O'Donnell um, and he said that the $25 million in damages were charged in connection with MGM's public stock offering. He said that they they had calculated the timing to inflict maximum injury to MGM UA. Um, the lawsuit, it obviously it targeted, targeted Cali personally. Um, he said during his tenure at United Artists, Cali acquired highly valuable proprietary information about the optimal ways to develop and exploit the franchise and bring it into the 21st century. Um, so yeah, it 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 didn't it didn't work. So obviously we never got that McClory that second McClory film. Um, 
But within all this, MGM also acquired the distribution rights for Never Say Never Again from Talia Film. So, you know, they're all, all trying to get their house in order. It's the start of that, isn't it? Which we see by the time we get to, was it 2000? It's when we get to Spectre. It, it, I mean, still, yeah, we're still a way off, but this is the start of finally wrapping things up, isn't it? Yeah. So finally, the premiere, World Charity premiere at the Odeon, Leicester Square on the 9th of December, 1997. So it went on general release on the 12th of December and it, it opened in second place in the US and Canada grossing over $25 million uh, behind Titanic, which obviously would become the highest grossing film of all time up to that point. So it's got a really big task uh, on its hands. Toronto Never Dies, it grossed $333 million worldwide, but it didn't surpass GoldenEye, which earned $353 million. So in terms of the uh, general sort of consensus and reviews, so Rotten Tomatoes has it as 57%. Uh, so 57? 57, yeah. And it says a competent, if sometimes by the numbers, entry to the 007 franchise. Tomorrow Never Dies may not boast the most original plot, but its action sequences are genuinely thrilling. So Roger Ebert, so we always like to mention him, he gave it surprisingly three out of four stars. And he said Tomorrow Never Dies gets the job done. Sometimes excitingly, often with style, with the villain slightly more contemporary and plausible than usual, bringing some subtler than usual satire to the film. And the Chicago Tribune said, first James Bond I've liked in many a year. And they noted that Elliot Carver, um, they appreciated the contemporary writings of the Bond series. That is most welcome. LA Times uh, said it had a stodgy been there feeling with little change from previous films. The New York Times said it as generic action event that could be a- any old summer blockbuster, except that it's a hero is chronically overdressed. Um, <laughs> more recently, Den of Geek said it's an improbable setup, which was likely intended as a satire of Murdoch's unaccountable media empire, but the risks of sure technological ma- manipulation have since proved to be frighteningly plausible. Um, they also said that uh technology wasn't you know wasn't the only main danger to be preempted by tomorrow dies it also offers a revealing peek into the confused state of the british national psyche which might help to explain the country's ongoing brexit debates brosnan's performance um particularly far out magazine said where paris carver's dead in the hotel room they said there's more substance here in a 4 minute encounter than brosnan found over four whole films so really finding a decent performance there but i mean yeah it's it's mixed it's mixed to negative i think but there is a lot of mention now more retrospectively that they were ahead of the curve in in what they were sort of putting forward especially with the whole fake news agenda mm. that is now massively prevalent with with social media um uh, yeah, yeah and manipulation by you know uh, third parties into uh, political yeah. events, that sort of thing. It does happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's happened for uh, hundreds of years. I guess it's all it's always happened. But I mean, this was this was bringing it into the the forefront, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. Especially in a franchise as big as Bond, that the the whole world's going to see. Yeah. Were there any awards to speak of? No. Jack mentioned that Cheryl Crow was nominated. 
Yeah. Yeah. Nomination for best original song. Just nominated. Yeah. Uh, The film received four nominations for the Saturn Awards. Yeah. Um, Brosnan won for best actor. Um, Why do you think his performance is really good in this? And he looks incredible. That's that scene that you mentioned with Paris Carver in the hotel room. He is terrific in that. Mm. Absolutely superb. Absolutely. I think there's the bits as well. His relationship with Michelle Yeoh is is fantastic. There are bits where, you know, particularly the shower scene where she handcuffs him to the shower, and he genuinely looks furious, but also completely taken aback. Like he's like, "This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen to me." And there are moments where he just glances across at her, which actually give Bond the depth that, you know, you certainly didn't see in in Roger Moore, you know, that Dalton tried to achieve, but, you know, it, I think he's, I think he's really, really good in it. I, I do think this is peak Brosnan. He looks the part in this one. Yeah. Like this is, yeah, this is, absolutely. this is him as Bond. This is perfect. Um, it's just a shame that he didn't get a script that was signed off anywhere near where it should have been, you know? Yeah. So three word reviews, Brendan. I'm just going to jump in because I've got someone on, on Instagram here. I did it on Instagram for once. Okay. Um, uh, Hom, uh, sorry, Horn sixty sixteen. Brosnan carries it. So I think that sort of chimes with what we're saying. Sir yeah. Rul also says Pierce was good, but Evermar says Austin Powers villain, um, and uh, Jay Jarman nineteen seventy three says Brosnan's best Bond. So a lot of positive reaction for Brosnan in this one. Yeah, so on Twitter, George Aldridge, he's put contextually years ahead. And like we've said, you know, it, it, it really is. Craig Main, he said pure 90s Bond. I agree. You, this is the definitely the most 90s Bond film. The Bond Bulletin put explosive popcorn cinema. A really 007 said a little Danish. <laughs> Very good. That's a nice nod. Um, Jack McMorrow said surrender is highlight. There we go. Jukebox Jim, 100% undiluted fun. The 007 Vintage said age like wine. You know, the opposite of what some retrospective reviews are saying. Yeah. Half Monk, Half Hitman, Empty Calorie Bond. Ah, that's not bad. That's, I like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's best Brosnan theme. We've got a massively mediocre movie, most underrated Bond, slick media villain. You know, it's there's no general consensus here. No. It's no. so mixed. I think that empty calorie bond is a good analogy. I think it is a fast food type bond. I think you can watch it, yeah. you can enjoy it, but it's not one for me that really um, connects in a, in a meaningful way. And actually think, Jack, your comparisons with Man with the Golden Gun are so accurate. I'd never put those two side by side before. But you're right. I mean, it's a second bond... They're scrambling to find their feet. It was rushed into production. They shot in Asia. They managed to land a great villain. Um, but for me, as I said with The Man with the Golden Gun, it's just not as good as the sum of its parts. It's got some great stuff in it. It's the motorbike chase, the car sequence. Uh, Michelle Yeoh's fantastic. Elliot Carver's good in moments. Brosnan's great in it, but just something about it just doesn't pull together. But I feel like you, you disagree with all that, Jack. I mean, I just think that, I mean, when you did the mailbag episode, there was a a question, you know, the Bond film that you would show to, you know, a partner 
the film you'd show to you know a kid who was wanting to get into Bond, you know, a, a mate who'd never seen Bond, and I think either the man with the golden gun or this or that film, like they are like the hundred percent Bond fun. You know, you don't have to. You get the flavor of everything that's great about Bond, but you don't have to. Invent, do you know what I mean? You can also do it whilst you're having a chat and you're having a beer. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those films that you can have. It's it's a social event, and it's not the best Bond film, you know, but it's the Bond film that you can rewatch over and over again. It's never a thing. Oh, like something like Casino Royale, and I, I absolutely love. It's a fantastic film, but you want to sit down and watch it proper, invest in it. You know, it's not a case of you join it halfway through if it's on. ITV or whatever, and you think, oh, I'll join it in from here because you want to watch it all the way through. It is a fast food bond, and I love it for that reason. You know, it, it's it's so consumable, and I consume it often. <laughs> How about you, Brendan? Yeah, it's it is, and it's funny because it is very throwaway in its nature, isn't it? It's uh, you're enjoying it while you're watching it, and then as soon as it's over, you can forget about it. You know, you, you, there's never going to be a memorable moment. I mean, I forgot about Stamper because I wasn't watching the film. You know, unless I'm watching the film, I'm going to forget about him. Um, it's got, it has got great moments. Like you said, Tom, you know, there, there's, the bike chase is incredible. It's unbelievable, um, yeah. And and that car chase, a driverless car chase, it, it, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, it just doesn't, it's empty calories. I think it's perfectly put because it doesn't it doesn't feed doesn't feed me. It doesn't fill me up. You know, I can eat it, but yeah, it's it's not a lot there. You need a from from Russia with love just to to finish you off, don't you? Oh, uh, I'd be too full after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you put it side by side with the, the world is not enough, um, I think I'm going to take this one over. The world is not enough. To be honest, I feel like we gave that bit of a kick in the other week. But I don't feel like that sort of uh, level of disdain for Tomorrow Never Dies. I just just don't feel too attached to it. It's a good movie, but uh, it's, it's not one of the great ones. I mean, if you're going to stick a Bond on, you know, this this or The World Is Not Enough, you're going to stick this on, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it rattles yeah. along at much better pace than The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. But there is that there is that feeling, there isn't there, that... Like for me, it's the nostalgia, and like for lots of the guests that you've had on have talked about, you know that it's that first film that you see, it's that first one that hooks you in, and this has got all those elements of things that hook you in. It's got the great set pieces, you know what I mean? It's got the great stunts, it's got, you know, for once a, a fantastic female lead who supports, you know, not, she, Michelle Yeoh does a fantastic job in this, and I think her role can't be understated in the way that she guides. You know, is that she guides the the role of women within the Bond franchise? You know, and that's clearly a, a Barbara and Michael move towards the present. You know, and, and and thinking about into the future about where they want to take the franchise. And I think she does so much for it. Um, and I think that that it's it's worthy of mention just for that alone. Yeah, casting a proper martial artist to do a proper martial artist role. I mean, it's 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 very ca- canny of them. And yeah, you're definitely right. Signposts where they where they're moving towards from where they have been. Um, so, I mean, Brendan, that that wraps up our six film run under the uh, letter T. How do you feel? Well, it's it's been, I mean, stupid really. It's we been daft, have... doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this right. is fine. 
Oh, it's all the yeah. the the ones. Yeah. The man with the golden gun. You yeah. know, should have done. World is not enough. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Jack. It's been a pleasure having you on. I hope you've enjoyed uh, getting stuck in. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, it, this will be our last episode before Christmas. We may or may not put out a Christmas special. Uh, I think if we say we are going to do, then we should do. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that between Christmas and New Year. Um, but, Brendan, if people want to get hold of the show on social media... At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can email the show on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Uh, um, and so, on that note, just want to say thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. And the James Bond podcast will, James Bond A to Z podcast, should I say, will return next week, hopefully, for a Christmas special. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy, with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Bond. James Bond. Let the mayhem begin. The movie blockbuster Tomorrow Never Dies. Next Friday, 8.55 ITV.